of chapter 5. The Lord be with you. And with our spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, on this feast of all saints, we give thee thanks for the blessed saints who came before us, who inspire us in our Christian journey. And we pray that you would send to us your Holy Spirit to, in, to make saints of us all. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I call this session today, the title of today's class, Thank Goodness We Set Our Clocks Back, I'm So Sick of Getting Up in the Dark. <laughs> but that was too long a title to fit on the purple sheet or in the adventurer, so I had to settle for while we were yet sinners. And I'm sure it's not... It doesn't strike you as nearly as catchy a title, but we'll do our best with it and see what we can, if we can make something useful happen here in the next hour. We're starting the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and we learned a lot of really good stuff in the fourth chapter while focusing on Abraham. Over the last two weeks... Paul's letter has established some really, really key points in developing his theology that he's laying out for the church in Rome. Point number one, that our relationship with God is based upon faith. Faith which preceded the law in the example of Abraham. Point number two, Abraham became the father of everybody who has faith. And that applies to Jews and Greeks alike, so that there is no there is no order of precedence among believers any longer. Jews came to their relationship with God through Abraham, and so do Christians. And that began with faith. That began before there was the law. That began before there was anything else. It started with faith. And so following that line of argument... <coughs> Abraham being the father of all means that Abraham was the father of, of Jewish believers and Greek believers, that is, Gentile believers. He is asserting the, uh, the unity of everybody under Christ. And the last point that he established in chapter 4 is that is the one using the three big words that we talked about. Our sin is propitiated, that is, it is, um, it is washed away, the perfect offering, the propitiation, which is Christ. We are redeemed, that is, the debt that we can't pay is paid for us by Christ. And we are treated as blameless, even though we are guilty. That is the concept of justification. It was justification that was the last word in, uh, in the fourth chapter. <clears throat> and that justification applies to all of us through Abraham. Now we're going to start chapter 5. And we're going to focus on what exactly this justification has done for us. Would somebody read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5? 
I'm going to give you a break this okay. week, coffee. Thank Steve, you. would you do it? Sure. <coughs> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Great. Thank you. John Stott points out something that escaped me when I first read this passage. A whole lot escapes me, but thanks be to God we have John Stott to point them out to us. That Paul has switched pronouns here. Remember at the beginning of the epistle, Paul wrote a lot in the first person. The first, first person singular, I. I have longed to come to you. I have longed to justify myself. Not just, I have longed to introduce myself to you. He, he sets up his bona fides with the church in Rome, none of whom he has ever met, in the early part of his epistle using the pronoun I. He then switches gears and begins to use the pronoun, the second person, you, and and the third person, they, he uh, refers to uh, the human race in its, uh, in its bondage to sin that God gave them up to all manner of evil and wickedness, referring to humanity as a group. He also uses uh, you as you know, the second person. You, he says, you who call yourselves Jews addressing himself to Jews. But at the very end of chapter 4, and now beginning in chapter 5, he switches to we. And in switching to we, he is emphasizing the community, everything that Christ has accomplished to make the I and the you and the they into we. Nice point, Mr. Stott. Thank you very much. It's worth paying attention, I think, to those changes as Paul goes through his letter. Now, in um, 
in the first part of chapter 5, he lays out, as I said before, the effect of justification. Again, sometimes, and Steve and I have both commented on this, sometimes we wonder why did the, did the chapters get laid out the way they did? Um, sometimes it seems as though the end of a chapter ought to be the beginning of the next chapter. The end of the last chapter actually tied up a very important point that he made all through the chapter about Abraham, where he says, um, writes in, in verse 22 going forward, Therefore his faith, Abraham's faith, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. This is the first time he's using the, the communal it will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Again, the introduction of the communal. And then he begins chapter 5 with talking about addressing himself to the effect of this justification on all of us. What is that effect? Oh, let me make the point. I think that here the chapter break was appropriate. But one could profitably read the end of chapter 4 leading into chapter 5 again to gain context for the continuation of his argument in chapter 5. He writes, Since we are justified by faith, that is, we are treated as guiltless, we are treated as worthy, we are treated as without blame, even though we are not without blame. Since we are justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Okay, we have peace with God. We'll talk about the, the characterization later in this passage that Steve wrote. But we are at war. That Steve read. No, no, not wrote. No. Boy, did I ever misspeak. Uh, maybe Charles will edit that out. I don't know. Um, no, uh, one of the things that Steve read about the character of us as sinners is that we are at war with God. We are enemies of God. And yet, Right out, uh, right out of the gate, Paul writes that we have peace with God through Christ, through whom we have obtained access. Was the word that Steve read in his translation? Is that is that written the same way in in verse two with everybody's translations? Access. The um, the the Greek word is another one of those Greek words that has several layers of meaning like the like the layers of an onion and um, Stott tells us that access in this context in the Greek can also be translated as introduction think of it for a moment um, in the in the terms of royalty one who has access to the king may come and go as he or she pleases. Maybe the king's first minister who gets 
an audience with the king at any moment without any kind of preamble, that kind of free and open access, if one is introduced to the king, then it implies that he doesn't belong. He has no business before the king. He does not have that kind of come-and-go easy access, but instead is allowed in where he has no merit to be. That is, a, I think, a very real sense in which Paul is writing this here, that even though, because we are justified, those of us who have been enemies of God are nevertheless at peace with God. Those of us who are, are strangers to God's righteousness nevertheless receive an introduction to God. So access here is, there's not one word that will suitably do it, but Stott makes a very good point that access can be introduction as well as just coming and going. And then look at what's written. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. I'll get to boasting in a minute. I want to get the boasting as a sort of a way of tying all this up because he writes of it later in the passage. But let's focus on this word hope for a minute. We, our hope of sharing the glory of God. We remember that word from chapter 4. The Greek word LPD for hope is prominent in chapter 4 when he writes about Abraham. What was it about Abraham that, that we remember um, having to do with hope in the last chapter? Well, remember Abraham received the covenant. Abraham was told by God that you will be the father of many nations. Abraham hoped against hope that that would be true. He trusted in, he believed in God's ability to make that happen. Why was that such a long odds kind of hope for Abraham to hold on to? Because he was as good as dead. Remember, that's what he wrote in chapter 4. He was 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, had never born children. At that point in their lives, they must have felt very old and dried up. And without any further ability to do much other than go from day to day and very soon become food for worms. And yet, hope against hope, he had hope. And this was an element of his faith. And here, Paul uses the same word, our hope of sharing the glory of God. All of this sounds great. It sounds like heaven on earth. We, are, we have peace with God through Christ. We have obtained access and introduction to the throne room where we don't belong. We are able to boast of our hope in sharing in the glory of God, where could be the downside in all of this? This is just as good as it gets. And yet, in the next verse, Paul gives us the other side of the coin. 
And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings. Once again, we're going to hold on to the boasting, that word in that concept, but we boast in our sufferings. He writes, We boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. There's that word again, LPD. Hope, the same hope that Abraham had. Why would we take joy in suffering? Any thoughts or comments or disputes with that? I mean, nobody wants to dispute with the Apostle Paul, but Brian, you have a comment? Well, I, I, two things occur to me. One, one is that it is when I'm suffering, when I, when I feel vulnerable and, and weak and in pain, uh, that's when I turn to God. I, I, don't, I don't turn to God when I'm feeling great and everything's going well. Uh, and so I think that's one of the great things that suffering does. And then the other thing uh, is that Suffering seems to be uh, the, the way that we, uh, you know, kind of relate to Jesus. He, he suffered and was saved or, or uh, you, know, you know, died and, and, and was resurrected right. and went to heaven. And, and, and that, that pattern seems to in some way hold Frank? The, the one of the comments and one of the things that Paul Zoll used to or would comment on or talk or whatever like word is, is that, um, that to really, really have you know, strong, real strong faith or confidence in, in Christ, that you had to be brought to your knees first. And which is why suffering. That until you really got you know, to the bottom and just released it all and surrendered or whatever. The great letting go, as it were. Okay. I can't control this. Yeah. yeah. Therefore, I need I need God to do it. Help. What I do now, this coach, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You die to yourself. Well, that makes, maybe that's another way to say it. Anyway. Die to yourself. Mm -hmm. The the obvious sense in which everybody can grasp is to to think back to the um, to the Sermon on the Mount. And Christ lays out for the apostles and the disciples the what we call the Beatitudes, the ultimate of which, the highest of which, you know, the, all of the blesseds starts with blessed are those who mourn. And it works up to blessed are those who suffer all manner of things for my sake. The obvious way that we can interpret these sufferings is that it's it's a good thing because it, when we are suffering for mm -hmm. his sake when we are persecuted and people speak all manner of evil against us as the as the sermon on the mount had it 
because we are in, in the sense that it is blessed because it, when it is being done for his sake, when we are being persecuted for the sake of Christ, as in the early church. But there are other senses too, and I think that both Brian and Frank have, have touched on that, that there are plenty of times when we suffer, when we, suffer, when we undergo tribulations, which is the translation in the Greek interlinear here, and which um, Stott also comments another translation of that word suffering is pressures, almost a technical term, like inside of a pressure cooker and the pressure is so great that it one can hardly move, can hardly think, it hurts. Um, if you've ever if you've ever been in very deep water uh, and you feel the pressure on your eardrums, you kind of get a, a sense of that kind of uh, meaning of the word pressures. But there are plenty of times when we find that we are suffering, that we are that we have tribulations and pressures that we can't relate it at all to our faith in Christ. That it doesn't, we're not being persecuted for his sake or in his name. We're not being spoken evil of because of our Christian faith. And so is that suffering pointless? Is it useless? And Paul writes that it isn't. That it's not because, as Frank, as Frank laid out, that only when we come to rock bottom can we can we be open to the the redemptive power of Christ through our lives. But Paul sets out here that suffering, our our tribulations, uh, produce endurance. Certainly, that's true. No pain, no gain in the athletic sense. The 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 harder or longer we run distance or or however many repetitions of whatever lifts we're doing in the gym, it starts to really hurt. It starts to build up the lactic acid and the stitch in the side and the aching feet. And until the endorphins kick in, um, it really feels awful to be in that, in that, uh, in that 11th mile. But uh, in Suffering produces endurance, and induce, endurance produces character. Well, we've taught our children that, haven't we? That, that, that it, you know, this may be, you may hate this son, but it's a character builder. <laughs> this, th- this summer job that you think is just so awful, cleaning out and carrying out the deli trash at Western Supermarket, which my son had to do, and he came home smelling like a, like a grease vat. Um, this is a character builder, my son. Um, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's that word again. There's that hope. Um, what sort of hope had been produced in Abraham at the point where he received the covenant? He'd certainly been through tribulations. He'd certainly... Uh, been under pressure, he'd certainly had suffering. As we said last week, he obeyed God's call to pick up everything that he had and move from everything that he had known and to go to a place that he had never been, that he didn't even know where he was going, and to live the rest of his life on borrowed land. 
in somebody else's tents. Um, that kind of suffering was the predecessor, if you will, those kinds of tribulations and pressures to Abraham's great hope when he received the Abrahamic covenant. He must have thought, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what I picked up and left the fertile crescent in obedience to a command I didn't understand to come here and wait for this. And this is the moment. This is the promise. I have hope. So here Paul is taking the Abraham had faith and faith is the basis of our relationship with God to the next step. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. There's the introduction of a new idea, the Holy Spirit. God's love comes to us through the Holy Spirit who who is poured into our hearts and has been given to us. This gift, this is the... The idea of the gift is going to animate Paul's theology all the way through his epistle. That Christ died for us, which we'll see in the next section, is a is a free gift, a gift that was that is it's not wages. Remember, he he wrote in chapter four about if one works for wages, then when he receives those wages, those are the that, that's the bounty to which he is due. But this gift of God was something to which we were not due, for which we have no justification except the justification that is in um, Christ, treating us as, as righteous when we are not. There was... Um, absolutely, go ahead. Well, you know what an epistle is. Epistle is just a, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a sort of an archaic term for a letter, and that's what that's what Paul was writing. It's not, in in my mind, it's it's an it's a very elevated kind of letter. It's not a letter that's just, hey, how are you? Just checking in, forwarding you the news from home. Um, that's I guess that's epistolary in the in the great question. I don't know. In our modern world, I find lots of things that should still be in favor that no longer seem to be in favor. <laughs> Coffee? Do you have a thought about that? Well, epistles were generally written, like you say, not as a hi, how are you? But epistles were written by the writers to be sent out to be preached as sermons, in essence, amongst the churches, and they were circular in their nature. They did not, the letter to the Romans may have gone from the Romans to someone else, just as some of the letters to the churches in Asia Minor were read in the church and then passed on down the line. They were really statements of faith and belief 
rather than newsletters. They had a higher purpose than a newsletter. But why did it go out of fashion? That's um, why did it stop using it? Why does the word not never appear anymore? Why don't we still refer to the Old Testament lesson as the epistle from Paul to, or epistle to the Romans or to the Hebrews or whatever? But you just don't ever hear the word epistle. Well, I mean, like John says, it's, it's sort of an archaic usage of the word. I mean, well, we ought to still use it. I agree with Frank. We ought to, we ought to still use it. Why do we, in the introduction, why do we say the letters of the Romans rather than the epistles? Well, I mean, you, you never, yeah, it used to be out as part of the service. Well, it would be a, the epistle, that, you know, well, the Old Testament mm-hmm. lesson would be epistle, or the New Testament lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, when I'm the lay reader, it is. <laughs> a reading from the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans is how I'm always going to set it up. So. That may have come about with the change in the prayer book. That's what I'm saying. I think that's what did happen, but I just don't know. Paul Saul pointed out once that the current prayer book that we use was, was put together during the disco era. One thing that Frank Lennon always did, which I thought was really cool, is whenever he was doing the gospel, he would say Holy Ghost instead of Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. It's a right. way of protesting. Um, verse 6 For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sets this passage up in, a, in an interesting way. Rarely will anybody die for a righteous man, even for a righteous man, rarely. Although occasionally he concedes, for a good person somebody might actually dare to die. And yet, for us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the great paradox. God proved his surpassing love that while we were in open rebellion against him, he died for us through his only son. Four points in this passage are descriptive of what we are. Verse 8 says we are sinners. Verse 6, the second half of verse 6, says that we are ungodly. In verse 10, did I read that far? I don't think I did. Well, we did, but when I was reading the passage just now, I stopped short of it. My apologies. Let me, um, let me read 9 and 10. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. We'll get to that paradox in a moment. But the third thing that this passage points out about us is that we are enemies or were enemies of God. And then back in verse 6, what set up that passage that I read, while we were still weak in the translation that I read, it is also translated as powerless. So four things that we are. We are sinners, we are ungodly, we are enemies, and we are powerless. All of them we've touched on before. By being enemies of God, we have effectively declared, he means that we have declared our rebellion, which is what, um, which is what happened in the garden. That's the very nature of sin. It's the very nature of idolatry. All of idolatry is focused on the me. That is, it's outside of what God's purpose is. It is instead substituting our purpose for God's purpose. That's the very nature of idolatry. That's why I think idolatry is the, is the, the root evil that is the nature of sin. Um, the, the sin that is in our very, it, it is our human condition that we are naturally, naturally in our beings. We are rebellious. We are the enemies of God. We are powerless because we have no ability in ourselves to make it any other way. That's original sin. We cannot be anything other than sinful. To put it in a medical context, think of original sin as a as a medical condition from which we suffer. All of, the, um, all of the willpower that I can muster will not overcome a medical condition which is chronic. I, I have it from now. I may have occasional outbreaks of it. I may... Uh, I may um, be worse off at some times than at other times, but even when I'm feeling good, I still carry this chronic condition. That's the nature of our sin. We are powerless by our own effort to overcome what is the nature of our chronic sinful condition. So we're sinners, we are ungodly, we're enemies, and we are powerless to do anything about it. And yet, this accounts, I think, this, is, this hammering that Paul is doing accounts for the majesty and the value of God's love and the value of the gift that is the blood of Christ that addressed it. But it's also the context for our tribulations. Again, to get back to the point that Brian was making, that because Christ suffered for us when we undergo tribulations, pressures, um, when we undergo um, sufferings for his sake, we are sharing, in a sense, the suffering that he did for us. That's a measure, I think, of, the, uh, of also of the nature of God, that nothing short of that suffering by his son would be enough to 
justify us from our sinfulness. Frank, you have a very thoughtful look on your face. Did you want to make a point? I don't want to interrupt. No, by all means. Um, so um, let's look in the time that we have left uh, to what our condition is now. In chapter 5, in the last part of this section that we read, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with, with verse 11 and leave the rest of the chapter for Steve to take up next week. Um, it says... Now that we have been justified by his blood, I'm in verse 9, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. So we've been saved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Does that mean that we're no longer sinners? Here's the paradox that Paul is writing both in the present and in the future tense. While we were sinners... Christ died for us. So he is saying that that Christ has paid the the debt of our sinfulness. But he also writes in verse at the end of verse 10, much more surely having been reconciled will we be saved by his life. That's the future tense. Um or a grammarian might correct me and say it's the, the, the future present or the future part of uh, whatever. But it, we get the we get the, the something like that probably. But we get the we we get the the sense that Paul is writing about something that will happen in the future, and Stott makes the point that he's that he's alluding to no less than the, the, the process that's the first coming of Christ that paid the debt of our sins and the second coming of Christ that will, that will raise us into a new perfection that will follow his resurrection that set the, 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 um, the example for it. The... Um, the the first in the original resurrection will be followed in the in the second coming by the resurrection of all of us into this new perfection that is that is no longer sinful so he is speaking of no less than the difference between the present age and the age to come to put it in jewish terms Christ's propitiation, the perfect offering, was the was what removed our guilt. His future salvation, his second coming, it was was is what will allow us to share in his resurrection. Now, a final point as I hear the bells ringing. Paul refers to us boasting in God. Verse 11. More than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, boasting is something that we've got to be careful about, right? Early in his epistle, he wrote that, and he was addressing himself to the Jews, you boast of your relationship with God that is through the law. And this 
special relationship that the law supposedly gives to the people of Israel. So why would Paul turn around and say that we boast of our, um, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Why would he say that we boast where earlier in the epistle he says to the Jews, you should not boast? Well, the former, the boasting of the Jews, to which he addressed himself, reflected a claim of a kind of an exclusivity, an exclusivity that was based upon the law. And he's just spent chapter 4 destroying the idea that it was the law that created any kind of a relationship with God. What came before the law was faith. And so... When he says, you Jews should not boast of a special relationship with God from the law. Did you have a question? Did you have a question? Go ahead. No. Okay. You should not boast of a special relationship in the law because that implies a kind of entitlement, a kind of a certain exclusive favor with God. When in fact, Paul's argument here is that because of the justification that came through Christ's atoning sacrifice, we have the knowledge that because that, that, that even though we are enemies, even though we were yet sinners, Christ has borne the, the weight of our sins and has paid the debt that we can't pay so that we are justified even though we deserve condemnation. So what we boast of is having been the recipients of this precious gift from God, which is the gift which does for us what the law could not do for the nation of Israel. Frank. Well, the, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Well, the Torah is the Jewish law. That is, the Torah is all of the law given to the Israelites in the wilderness. That is, the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law, and the law of rites and ceremonies. The Talmud is the commentary that the, the expansion of the law into all of the rules and regulations. So the purpose of the, as I understood it, the main purpose of the Ten Commandments is that nobody can keep them. And therefore, therefore you had to have somebody to rescue you because nobody could, could and then you look at all the follow-ups that the, that the Jews had, you know, the, you know, you can't work on, I mean, all these, you can't, all these different laws hey. that they kept expanding and expanding it. And, and it if you just take a take a minute, nobody can comply, and therefore you need help. You're exactly right. That and Paul made that this this point earlier in the epistle that before there was the law, there was no understanding of sin because there was no standard. The law provides the context in which we can understand our lack of righteousness. So without the law. Without the law, we do not see the standard. With the law, we do see the standard, and we understand how short we are of meeting it. 
coffee? Well, uh, <laughs> I was just mulling over in my mind. The real, the Jewish concept of salvation depended on or, or the end time arrival, depended on all people one day keeping all 617 points of the law. Is that how many there were? I think it's a 617 okay. or 617. Right. I, I remember it was 617 because of a little quirk in my memory. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, that is what I... <coughs> you know, and by the chapter, chapters in the Bible, they're yeah. a fairly modern invention. About 892 yeah. or 1200, I'll look it up, but I got it noted somewhere. Just like yesterday, Dorothy. I might have had a, a word because I like my translation better because it doesn't say wait. It says rejoice. Rejoice. Yeah. We may rejoice. That's a great place to end this week. And thank you, Dorothy. And thanks be to God for all of you. And have a blessed week. You too. I'll be on the road next week, but Steve will be in the corner chair.